On behalf of the college, we are very honored to, uh, to have Sheikha Tamara Gray here to uh, address us on such an important topic um, that really needs the insights of someone not just with knowledge but experience and wisdom. And uh, to give a brief introduction, uh, Sheikha Tamara Gray is the founder of Rabatha, an organization dedicated to promoting positive cultural change through individual empowerment, spiritual upbringing of women by women, and the revival of the female voice in scholarship. She lived in Syria for 20 years where she studied um, all the major classical sciences of Islam. Um, uh, she studied fiqh and theology and the Quranic sciences. And she studied uh, the biography of the Prophet ﷺ in depth with one of the foremost experts in the field in the world who herself is a great female scholar and uh, she's uh, fluent in both spoken and classical Arabic and received an ijazah in the recitation of Quran from one of the greatest, most famous um, teachers of Qira'ah in Syria Sheikh uh, Muhyiddin Aghi May Allah have mercy on him and uh, uh, Sheikh Tamara is a doctoral student in the leadership policy and administration program at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota yeah. Yeah. She holds a master's degree in curriculum theory and instruction and works in the field of education focusing on instruction, curriculum design and impl implementation, administration and teacher training. Her, her publications range from several culturally appropriate English language curriculum programs to translations of sacred texts and her most recent publication is an interactive journal called Joy Jots Exercises for a Happy Heart which takes the reader through 52 weeks of growth, discovery, and joyful outreach. Um, she started a, uh, oh, that's, uh, some of the projects that she initiated through Rabata include the Lena Project, a two-day workshop that addresses the unique uh, needs of female converts, Circles of Light, which is group and individual activities that foster a strong habit of worship, and Daybreak, which is a publishing company, uh, and Third Space, a publishing company in thir Third Space in Minnesota, and Rabat, which is an online academic program that brings college-level Islamic learning to women across the world, offering certifications in the Islamic sciences as well as teaching certifications. Um, inshallah, uh, we welcome Sheikh. Assalamualaikum. Thank you for having me here. And just so you all know, my name rhymes with camera. 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 Okay. We're going to talk here about my uh, field, leadership. So just, we have, three, in the title of what we're talking about today, we have three different important concepts. One is leadership, one is social change, and the third is Muslim communities. And in the field of leadership, we talk about a lot of different things. And one thing we talk about is the idea of a taxonomy. So a taxonomy looks like this is something very simple, which is in a society, in a society, what is a good thing, what is considered good and positive, and what is negative, what is considered. There's a chair up here if you like. There's a chair up okay. There we have uh, here, if you like, here. There's uh, we, uh, those things that are positive and those things that are negative in this society. So, as a very simplistic example, in Muslim societies, we consider it a positive thing to pray, 
and a negative thing not to pray. That's a very simplistic example. We'll have some more complicated examples as we go forward. We want to today, in this hour or whatever that we have together, break up looking at leadership, social change in Muslim communities, and come up, not just with theory, because I think we can all talk about theoretically, but some practical applications of what we talk about. What are we practically going to do as leaders in our community because we're in an emergency situation, in my opinion? We're in an emergency situation. Let's talk about Muslim communities. I shouldn't have put the practical here. If we're, let's talk first about Muslim communities. Think amongst yourselves, what are some of the problems in our Muslim communities? And I know that we have, if we're thinking globally, that means we're talking about Muslim communities that are Western. So the community here in England, Cambridge, in America, in Canada, and even Australia, Western cultured countries. And then we have the, the rest of the world, the rest of Muslim countries of which 80% of our countries were colonized. So really, they're pretty westernized anyway. I want you to think about what are some of the serious problems we have in our Muslim communities today. Think about it. Tell the person next to you what you think you have 15 seconds to think about that. Tell the person next to you what are the most serious, the top three problems. The top three problems in Muslim communities that you see today, top three problems. So first next to you, 15 seconds, come on. Okay, thank you. What do we come up with? Something from this group over here, give me one problem. Lack of leadership. Lack of leadership, that's cheating. <laughs> okay, lack of leadership. How about you guys over here, this group? Give me something. Education. What do you mean? Education is a problem because you're learning too much? No, no. Lack of education. Sorry, who's saying? Lack of education. What exactly do you mean by lack of education? I think I feel like there's a certain point where we, the Muslim community in the West, especially, we just get up to a certain point of education and we don't excel further than maybe a degree, um, the majority of the Muslim community. You're talking about secular or secular. sacred? Secular education. Okay, another one in the back. Everybody in the back. Here, can someone take this chair? Here, to the back, and you guys, here's another chair. I don't need this. In the back, does somebody have another idea in the back? Hello? Okay, go ahead. Uh, fear, misunderstanding. Fear. And the crisis of identity. Crisis of identity, I like it. One more, come on, in the back. Pardon me? It's kind of mixed in with the fear. Yeah, to be sure. In the back, anybody? So we're divided because we're talking about what are the problems, right? So we're divided. One more from anyone? Depression. Depression, okay. Okay. I'm going to give you some of mine. I think, in my experience, now I'll just tell you about me a little bit. I left. I lived in Syria for 20 years. I left Syria in 2012 because of the war, and I moved to the United States, where I'm from. My experience in looking and having eyes open to look at the problems of communities began in 2012. So that's a disclaimer. I have now my whole life been looking for the problems of Muslim communities. I was happily living in Syria, totally oblivious of problems, and just living in my own little bubble of learning. 
Now, in the last four years then, what I've seen is that we, we are insular. We are insular. We are ignorant. And, well, and we are, I can say depressed, but there's a better word for it that I've just lost. And we are downtrodden, let's say. What do I mean? And by insular, I mean that we are too much into ourselves. We are a community that knows only ourselves. And even within the large Muslim community, we have, if this is the Muslim community here, as in people that have Islam somewhere in their life, somewhere strapped on them, whatever, the communities that we live in are about this big. Within the Muslim community even. We rarely know much about or are we interacting with the rest of our Muslim community. Much less the much larger community that's around us. I think this is a serious problem. I'll tell you why in a minute. As far as ignorant, I, I would agree here that we have ignorance, secular ignorance, but my feeling is that in general we have religious ignorance. We're deeply ignorant about our tra- the tradition of our faith. And perhaps you in England have, or maybe at this college you don't really feel that because you're coming out of anima and courses and things like that. But I think if we're looking at the larger community, we have to recognize that we have a lot of ignorance about what does it mean to live as a Muslim, what does it mean to be a Muslim. And we're downtrodden because we have a lot of trouble. We have a lot of just, we have war and we have economic problems and we have oppression. In America today, we have racism, racist issues, Islamophobia, and other phobia. I think you have those here in England as well. I don't think they're as bad as they are in the United States. So, when we're talking about social change for Muslim communities, the first thing we have to do, I'm going to get rid of all of this, is identify. You have to identify. What is your problem? What is the problem that you think is important that you want to change? Okay. Once you've identified that, then you have to think about how is it going to change. And this is where I want to talk about taxonomies. If we have the Prophet in here, and we think about his community, the community that he supported and the community that he built, what was good and what was negative in his community? In my own research, it's is only beginning. I think here it was it was a positive. Thing to be a nurturing person. So to be someone who cared about other people and someone who embraced other people. So we found this, we found when the people of other faiths and, and the disbelievers that came to Medina, even as prisoners, the Prophet we know many stories about how he cared for them very well and he made sure that they ate and all of this kind of stuff. To be very nurturing, he was empowering. So he empowered Women especially in the community, we have many stories of like Ashifa and Imwaraqa, Yusayba bin Ka'ab, Ruqayya, Rufayda, all of these different companions of the Prophet who were doing and they were actively involved in social change and social activism within the community. The Prophet was empowering of that, not to mention he was empowering of people of other races and people of what we call today that were physically challenged and had difficulties in, in their, their physical bodies. So he was nurturing, he was empowering, and as the, what was negative over here would be to be 
as selfish. Right? So he was, we can say nurturing is part of generosity, but I guess I'll put it down here. He was generous. So he was, to be selfish was a bad thing. To be, to, uh, what's the opposite? To be disempowering, to tell people they couldn't do things, was considered a bad thing in this society. To be cold-hearted, and you, those of you who studied in this school, I'm sure that hadith can come to your mind about all of these things, was considered a bad thing. We know the story about the man who said to the Prophet I have never hugged my children once. And he said, what can I do for you if, if you are, if uh, you have been separated from the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So these are just three examples. We could make a nice long list here. But let's, instead of doing that just for, the, for time, let's talk about the Muslim community today. And let's talk about the wider community. Okay. What does it mean in the Muslim community? Let's be honest with ourselves now. What is it to be in the Muslim community? Is it a positive thing to be nurturing or empowering? I, do, I would say no. I would say we don't really understand what it means to be nurturing or empowering. I would say that instead we find it important to be a celebrity. We applaud celebrity. We really like people who are famous. We really like people who are on YouTube. And our youth especially really likes people who are on YouTube. Uh, it's, a po- it's a positive thing to be powerful as opposed to empowering. As in we approve of and like when we have our own, when we have power and we can tell people to do things whether it's in, in family life or in community life or in, on a wider scale. I would say also that economically we are, we are st- I would say we're still quite generous as a community. But I don't know if we, were, we are as, but we, we definitely look upon it as a positive thing. What's negative? You see what I'm doing here? What's negative in our community? It's negative to be unknown. Right? But we can all we can add to this. It's positive to speak Arabic. That's an important thing. Those are, I mean, these are good things. But it's negative to be unknown. It's negative to be weak. It's negative to be stingy. Although we know plenty of people who are. <laughs> I'm sure you do too. Now, what's, when we're talking about leadership for social change, what we're talking about is how do we Look at this and look at where we are and find a way to move to, to move the to, to adjust what is positive and adjust what is negative. I don't think we, we probably just for today's lecture, let's not go into the wider world. It's not. That's where leadership comes in. Now here is where we have to go back again and look at the Prophet and then we look at his seerah. And we need to look at all the different aspects of his seerah and really to begin to understand what is important, what was important to him, and what do we need to define as positive. I think we need to go back and say, we need to have a community that is nurturing. We need to have a community that is empowering. We need to stop being concerned about celebrity, stop being concerned about being powerful. We need to continue to be generous and perhaps learn how to be truly generous in greater ways than we are today. Because we are, as a community, affected by capitalism, to be sure. 
All right, how do we do that? First of all, over here with leadership, we want to think about the terms. We want to think about globalism. Sorry, these are big things, but if we don't think about them, we won't be able to make change. And then we, from great, from globalism, we need to come down and think about specific issues that we want to deal with. I'm going to just give one example today. All right, terms. I, the, I was just talking in the car, so I'll use this example. The term non-Muslim. Oops. I said that I thought one problem with Muslim communities is that we're insular. The problem with being insular is that people don't know us. We can be easily othered. Do you know what that means, to be easily othered? When you are easily othered, that means people don't want to become of you. They don't want to be part of you. They don't want to learn from you. They think you are strange. They think that they're not ever going to be part of you. When we are insular, we encourage other people to other us. So, we, one, how do we make ourselves insular? One of the ways we make ourselves insular is because we use this phrase. We have divided the world, the whole world, into two groups of people. Muslim and non-Muslim. Now, we always want to go back to the process center and think about positive, negative, positive, negative. Does, don't answer right away. Think about it. Let yourself think about it for a minute. Does this feel like what was happening at the time of the process center? Dividing the world into two camps? Does this feel like that? Or what if we said, in our time today especially, what if we said people of other faiths? Now, I want to give you some context here of what I'm talking about. And those of you who were at the lecture earlier, you've already heard this, but that's all right, you can hear it again. I really believe in the definition of the Ummah of Muhammad that Imam Sha'rawi uh, presents, who is, those of you, you all know who he is, he's the Mufassir of Egypt, He was a great Mufassir of Quran, and he defined the Ummah of Muhammad as because he is rahmatul alameen, he is a mercy to the world, and because he, is, he has all these names, the, the, the bringer of good news, the warner, he is rahmatul alameen. So Imam Sha'rawi says that the Ummah of Muhammad is divided into three, three groups of people. One are those who are, who those who have responded. That's anyone in this room, because anyone who would come to a lecture about Islam. Anyone who prays, anyone who says, yes, I'm Muslim. Anyone who fasts even one day of Ramadan. Anyone who does anything within the context of being a Muslim belongs in this group of the uh, those who have responded in the Ummah of Prophet Muhammad The second group are those who were born into Islam. They've come into Islam by 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 their country they were born in, or the parents that they had, or what have you. And they haven't responded. So these are those who did not respond. But they're within the ummah, because they were born into it, they were provided with it. They have not responded, let's say, yet. And the third group of people, according to Imam Sha'adawi, are the people of other faiths. Anyone else, every other human being in the earth, is part of, in our understanding of Rahmatul Alameen, 
part of the ummah of Muhammad Because the Prophet is, is in the way that we believe in our aqidah, he is the last prophet. He is the final prophet to the world. He didn't come to a little group of people. 20% of Muslims are Arabs. He didn't come to the Arabs. He didn't come to Pakistani people. He didn't come to uh, Iranians. He didn't come to the Turks. He didn't come to any particular group of people. We can all agree with that. And at the same, so we also have to recognize that he didn't come only to people who have responded to him. He's there to be responded to by anyone. So what does that mean for us when it comes to leadership? It means that we need to be concerned about everyone. We need to be concerned and thinking about every human being on the face of the earth. And when we are thinking like that, we change how we act. I'm going to come back to this thought in a minute, so we'll come back here. Globalism. Globalism is a problem for us as Muslims. It's a problem because 80%, as I said, of our countries were colonized. I want you to think about that for a minute. 80% of Muslim countries were colonized. That means that 80% of our countries had the population downtrodden, pushed down by a power that came in from outside and changed the very structure of the country's laws. Very often, even, countries are often built on the agriculture of the country. And the colonial powers came in and changed very often agriculture. Case in point is Algeria. And you're Algerian? Nobody? In Algeria, the, when the French went to Algeria, one of the things they did is they cut down and got rid of the olive groves so they could grow grape vines, grape orchards, or whatever you call them. Now, the reason they did that is because they wanted to sell, they wanted to harvest the grapes and make wine in France so that they could sell it. So what happened is that the olive trees are, that's olive oil, so that's a very rich uh, crop. The Algerian people lost their crops, they lost their income, because to sell a grape is not the same as to sell olive oil, or even olives. They lost their income because they were, it, those who still had the land, they were selling grapes instead of olives. And then the French were making the money because they were selling wine. It's a very small example of the kinds of things that happened in, in Algeria as well. People were taken, they were in villages that had really solid social systems. Solid social systems. The people were taken out of these areas and put in other areas where the social systems broke down. And so when you look at the messes that we have in our countries today, it's very easy for Muslims who live outside to say, oh, why aren't we doing this? Why do we act like this? But we have to recognize that the reason that we have problems is because we're 80% colonized. And the globalism of ideas spread. So we had powerful people bringing ideas from the West into our countries. Now usually when we say ideas from the West, people think we're talking about issues of morality. I'm not talking about that. Issues of morality come later. Certainly they do come with globalism. I absolutely admit that. But there are other more important issues that came from the West that we don't necessarily recognize. And one of them 
uh, this is a long discussion which I won't get into, but just as a small idea. One of them is the Enlightenment period. The Enlightenment period, we read about that as it has to do with Christianity. If you've ever read about the Enlightenment period, then you've read about it as it has to do with Christianity, as it has to do with Europe, as it has to do with the Western world. But what I want you to do is think about this Enlightenment period was happening in Europe. Capitalism is a result of that. Capitalism, and what is one really big part of capitalism? Calvinism. I know that these, I don't want to confuse you with all of these different isms. What I want to do is show you how certain ideas came from places that we could never imagine and washed over our communities and caused great social problems overseas and here. And why then we need leadership that helps us move what is negative into what is positive and change what is positive into that which would be positive to the process of that, if that makes sense. So the I want to just mention the, the example of Calvinism. The example of Calvinism is, I want now let's look at positive and negative for Muslims. Originally, in our communities with the Prophesyism, we had, it would be a positive thing to give with your right hand so your left hand doesn't know, correct? So to be, to be very charitable, to be, um, to, to not be, to, have, to be um, removed from the world, to be modest in, not modest in dress, but modest in what you own, okay? Modest in ownership, not showing off. Do we all agree that this is original in Hadith and Quran and this one, Prophet Okay. Etc. Now, if we look around the world today, just think about your cultures. What is it that makes someone a high-class person in Saudi Arabia, in Kuwait, in Syria, in Lebanon, in whatever? It's having fancy chandeliers. It's having, I'm not criticizing that, okay? I just want us to think about where it might have come from. Let's look back over here to Calvinism. Calvinism is a Christian way of thinking that is directly related to capitalism because Adam Smith was a Calvinist. Calvinism, in a simplistic form, this is just simple definitions here because this is not a discussion, this is not a study of Calvinism. Calvinism had a, had a very fatalist point of view, which is the idea that a baby that is born, okay, <laughs> A baby that is born is born already predetermined to go to hell or heaven. And there's nothing the child can do to change that. Okay? Now, this gave birth to Puritanism and some things like that. But then, pretty soon people started saying, well, how do I know if I'm a person of heaven or I'm a person of hell? I want to know. Again, just to remind everyone here, we're talking about Calvinism. Sim in a simple way. Very, very simple way. How do I know if I'm going to heaven or I'm going to hell? Oh, we, they started to talk about, well, we can see the signs in people around us. What are the signs? Oh, I know. People who are successful in this life, they have money, they have looks, they have houses, they have children and servants and all this stuff. This must be a sign that they're going to have it. 
So see that rich man? See that poor man? And so people began to look down on the poor, to look down on those who were without, and to look up to those who had a lot. I know this is very simple, but let's go back to thinking about our community now. How much of that have we soaked up? We're not Calvinists. We're Muslims. We believe in free will. We believe in, that Allah Taala has all knowledge of things, but that we, in our actions, make a determination of whether we will be able to go to heaven or not. So why is it that we also judge by, by celebrity, by money, by power? What has happened to us? How much of globalization has affected us? Finally, specific issues. What are... And I suppose I should have written, oh, I can leave it. What are some of the specific issues? I asked some of you to just think about it. I said being insular. Issues of empowerment. Here we have issues of poverty, let's say. These are issues within our community. Issues of women's issues. We have a lot of women's issues in our community. And I know that for men, it's hard to see them sometimes, especially the good guys. And I know you guys are all good guys in here. We wouldn't be here today. But uh, it's really hard for men sometimes to see the issues that women are suffering from. Case in point is the mosque. I have two cases in point, actually. One case is the mosque. with um, Hinz Mekki has a blog called, uh, uh, what's it called? Side entrance, thank you, yeah, side entrance. And um, when, it, when she, it, on her blog, she posts people, mosques from all over the world. She says the beautiful the and the not so beautiful, and I don't know, I can't remember what she calls it. Anyway, when pic- pictures of women's entrances and women's spaces began to be posted, there were many men who were shocked. They had no idea. They had been going to mosques week after week, and they sat in beautiful places and made an assumption that the places and spaces that women were sitting in were also beautiful. And when they saw, and why wouldn't they make that assumption? They should assume that. But when they saw the pictures and the entryways that were back in alleys and next to garbage cans, and spaces that were filthy and dirty next to bathrooms, and spaces that were too small for the women and children, there were a lot of men who were surprised. When I went to Hajj last year, I, uh, I was very hurt by when we went to visit the Prophet and the women have a turn, I put that in quotes. When women are given a turn to walk into the Prophet to visit him, there are walls put up so that as you walk, you won't by accident be able to see the Prophet's grave. That's all I said. And so the woman's turn becomes something that really isn't... You get a little slit. There's a little slit piece of the green carpet. And I told our imam that went with us on Hajj, I told him, you know, I'm just not... He said, what's wrong? And I said, I'm just feeling frustrated and hurt by this because I love the Prophet Sallam too. And I have no intention of doing anything but just giving him my salams like anybody else. 
I would just like to go in there like anybody else. And he said, well, you have a term. I said, well, not really. Even the Qur'ans, the Masahif, in that part of the mosque are covered with plastic. So that, I don't know what that is for. But anyway, so these are, these women's issues, I need you to know they hurt women. And for some women, they challenge their faith because they feel badly treated. And remember that the same women that are going to a mosque where there isn't a nice space for them, when they go to university, when they go to work, when they go to school, when they go to the mall or wherever else they go, they get the great greet. And they have beautiful places to sit. And if they were to go to church or anywhere else, they're also going to have a beautiful place to sit. So women's issues are very important. And when I say that, I don't want you to misunderstand it. Women's issues as, as leaders in our community, we have to be aware of them because we don't want to lose our women. If we lose our women, we've lost the next generation. Nana Esma'u, excuse me. Nana Esma'u was an African leader of the 19, early, early 19th century, late 18th century. She has a beautiful story, which I won't tell now, but one thing that she did is she recognized the importance of women. And they had thousands of convert women. And so she worried. She said, they're converts. What can they know about their religion? They really don't know anything. So she devised a genius system. I highly recommend you look her up. Excuse me, a genius system in order to reach out to these women in Africa at that time. It was very, very difficult to do so. And she developed a system where all these thousands and thousands of women became educated in Islam. She recognized that if women are distant, the whole community is going to suffer. I think we're not recognizing that when we're when women's issues, we have domestic abuse issues as well, serious ones. We have marital issues. I don't know about in England, but in the United States, we have problems where there are marriages that are never legally written. They're just at the mosque. And the problem with that is that Islamically, in our law, who protects women? If you get married, what happens? Who protects the woman? How is Islamic Sharia set up? Who, if you get married, who protects you? Men. No, the courts. The courts. If, if you get married, if a man gets married to a woman, and she, there's something, something goes wrong, what, who, what is her recourse in Islamic Sharia? The court. She needs to go to the court. She goes to the court. That's how she gets takes her her recourse. And there are all sorts of different possible things she can do. So if, if we have women that are getting married without the court, what have we done? We've stripped them of their rights. And I know there are complicated issues there that you can talk about, about which court and all of that. But without a court, she doesn't have a right anymore. There's some really serious issues we need to talk about. Now, how are we going to do about this? We're talking, we have problems, we have to think about terms, we have to recognize the context of our problems and be able to identify our specific issues and not run away from them. We have racism in our communities. Can we talk about that without getting mad at each other? We have racism. We look down on each other. People from one culture to another. People of one color to another. In our community. We need to not be looking out and saying only the other people have this problem. We have it too. And we have to learn how to identify it and solve it. And solve it. Okay, so how are we going to do that? 
how are we going to make this social change as Muslim leaders or as leaders of the Muslim community? What are we going to do? First of all, we need to identify the terms that we need to use and we need to start using them. I really highly recommend people with other faces. It's not my idea. I stole it from somebody. But I highly recommend using this idea. People of other faiths. We stop separating ourselves and we start caring. What happens when we care about the people around us? We get involved. And what do we get rid of? We X out our insular selves. When we X out our insular selves, we have power. We empower ourselves. In America today, I know you're watching Trump and all of that on the news, and it's really a problem. It is a problem, but the problem is limited to those people who have never met a Muslim. And while that's a lot of people, especially considering that the Muslim community in America equals the Jewish community. But if you ask Americans, have you ever met someone who's Jewish, they will just about all say yes. Just about. But if you ask them, have you ever met a Muslim, they will, the high majority will say no. They haven't. So why? What's going on there? Part of the reason is because we are not involved in social justice issues. So if we can get involved in social justice issues, then we will be met and we will be fulfilling the mandate of الَّذِينَ آمِنُوا وَعَمِلُوا صَالِحَاتِ I know I talked about this a little bit previously as well. But then we have a mandate. Or if you will, we can talk about the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ where he says to us to make change. Make change by our hand, by our tongue, or by our heart. What does this mean to make change? What kind of change? It means when we see something wrong, see something ugly, what are the ugliest things? Oppression, racism, uh, issues where people are hurting and not able to, to follow their religion because of some, issue, some social pressure issue, economic issue, political issue, what have you. We're going to make a change by our hand. What are we going to do? Or by our words. We can write, we can blog. We can write, we can use, so we can, I have a friend who has a really brilliant idea. You know the trolls on Facebook, you guys, social media people? So to set up, her brilliant idea is let's set up an organization that has trolls vis-a-vis enough. <laughs> and the idea is that these people sit on Facebook all day long looking for places to write good things. Looking for anywhere they can to write something positive. To write something good. To write, it's really actually quite a brilliant idea. You know, there are two groups of people, in, two political groups in America. It's, this is a commercial, okay? Commercial. But it has to do with this. And there are two groups, Republicans and Democrats. And the Republicans, they have a lot of really... Fox News is their mouthpiece. And what, why are there, why, and Fox News looks down on you know, people that are poor, it's their own fault, they should do something about it, they're, it's kind of really, um, George Lakoff calls it the strict father method of thinking. But, uh, what happens, what, they've been successful because they have think tanks, because they have this Fox News, and the Democrats, who George Lakoff calls nurturing parents, uh, they've got, they, they don't spend money on think tanks. And they don't spend money on these things, on having a, a mouthpiece. One of the reasons is because they're spending their money on helping the poor and things like that. So I think we as Muslims can look at this and say, well, wait a minute. 
maybe we need to think about spending money on ways to have think tanks and such and such. And mashallah, this college is one of those, is one of those things. Okay, so one thing is to get involved and so, and so that we're no longer insular and so we can solve social justice issues. Two, create institutions. By creating institutions, we can begin to move this taxonomy. We can move what is what. So we have some things that are negative that we want to be positive. Right? We, to move that which is negative to make it positive, and to bring in what should be positive and put it over here, we, need, we can create institutions. This is the one example, this place that we are in today. Our bookstore is another example. Our bookstore is um, it's called Daybreak, and we are a little bookstore in St. Paul, Minnesota, actually in Minneapolis, and we have, it's just a bookstore, it's an independent bookstore about, our books are social justice books, we have books about STEM, a lot of them, but it's not an Islamic bookstore. And as a result, we've gotten all sorts of non-Muslims who come in there, read about Islam, talk about Islam, see us as, they, they no longer can other us. And it brings us, it brings them sort of, it brings social change. It brings some social change, at least some measure of it. And three, the third one, so we want to get involved in the current institutions. I want to talk just for a second, because we're Muslims, we are a religion. We're a religion, we're not a philosophy, we're not a race, we're not a political uh, party. So whenever we're thinking about leadership in Muslim communities and social change, we have to consider spirituality. We have a crisis of prayer today. Our children are not praying, and when they are, it's one or two prayers in front of you. Generally speaking, our children are not praying. Our youth are not praying. Some of our adults are not praying. Our fold prayers have fallen on the wayside. And this is a crisis. It's a serious crisis. And if we are going to lead, I talked a lot about heady stuff here, but we can't as Muslims in our Muslim communities lead anywhere or anyone anywhere unless we consider the crisis of prayer. And it's a serious crisis. If you look to your own selves and think about how many times have you missed the public prayer in the last month, and then remember that you are of the group of those who have responded and those who care, and then wonder in all the millions and millions of Muslims, how would things be different if we were praying? If we were praying for real? Praying each five prayers, each of the five prayers. And as we consider this, as we consider where are we praying, and are we praying, we consider how that bleeds into, or spreads into, all of the problems that we talked about. Why that affect, how that affects us negatively. How do we seek Allah's Allah's help in all of our things if we're not even doing the very basic of prayer, salam. How do we try to get involved with other people and help solve social justice issues if our basic, basic element of our religion we're leaving aside? And every time we leave one prayer aside, one Fajr prayer, one Dhuhr prayer because we're at work, 
one also prayer because we're on the speedway or whatever you call it. One Isha uh, prayer because it's too late at night in the summer. Each time we leave that aside, we are walking away from what defines us as unique. Because we are not, we have to be so careful that we don't follow the path that the Jews followed where they, they became a race. We're not a race. We have to be so careful that we don't follow a path that others have gone before us. We're not a philosophy. Many Christians have sort of, it's sort of become almost a philosophy. We are a religion. We are a faith. And unless we're connected to our spirituality, at the very least through our prayer, I know we can do, we have heady talk about, you know, or spiritual talk about the dhikr and Quran and all of this stuff, but we can't talk about these things if our community isn't praying. And our, I'm telling you, in my experience over the past four years, the community isn't praying. Period. End of story. They're not praying. We've got a few people in the community who keep up their five prayers, but in general, majority of people are missing prayers on a regular basis. Maybe they make them up, and there's plenty of people who don't make them up, and even more than that, who don't pray at all. And these are people that are coming to the mosque and this and that. So imagine the people who are are farther than that, are farther than that. So we have a lot to do. And... It's a little bit depressing sometimes, but we need, you need to, we need to think very practically so that we can make these real changes. And I promise to think practically over here, so let's do that. Practically speaking, let's do five practical things that we can do to make the kinds of, to have to be leaders. There are different kinds of leaders. You know, leadership is just to make, and when you make change, you become a leader. Making any change means that you've become a leader. You don't have to be a charismatic leader to make change. So what are the five? What are five practical tips or what have you? Practical things that we can do to make for social change in our community. First of all, we need to be creative and think outside the box. You think outside of the box in all things. Use, I think we need to use technology. All of our children are on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and Snapchat. Actually, they're not on Facebook. Facebook is for old fogies like me. (laughs) They're on Snapchat and other things that I probably don't know about. And we need to use this technology to reach them. I heard that Hamza, I didn't hear it from Hamza Yusuf, but my computer guy said that Sheikh Hamza Yusuf said, there was a time when the world, the Muslim community had an, an, an alim or a scholar and every, in every neighborhood, on every street. And today, the numbers of people, the numbers of scholars, or people that have wisdom and intelligence, and uh, I didn't mean to say intelligence, I meant to say knowledge about Islam, and are very few. So my computer guy said that Sheikh Hamza said, and that's why Allah SWT gave us internet. <laughs> so that we can, they can reach across the world and we can reach out to them. And I think that's actually quite, I think, there, I think there's beauty in that and there's, there's beauty in that thought that there's, there, as much as there is danger in the internet, of course, there's also a lot of beauty and possibilities there and possibility of how to reach out. I use the internet a lot in my work. We do it. We use it for Ribat, our online, our women's 
uh, academic program. We use it for for Ibadi, to help people with their Ibadi. We use WhatsApp for that. Um, and we use it in a lot of different ways. I think we should use con- technology. We need to be very creative and do different different kinds of things that we're not used to. We need to use culture. And maybe I shouldn't use the word culture because what I mean here is literature, uh, film, poetry, etc. We need to use these things to make great changes because the world changes based on literature. If you go to the bookstore, and you must all have a really nice collection of books upstairs, but those are books meant for scholars and things. I loved them. I said to someone, let's take them all home with us. But uh, when you're talking about real change in society, what are people reading? They're reading fiction. They're reading stories. Story changes. Story stays with you. Even the Prophet ﷺ during his lifetime had his companions tell stories again and again to people about their lives. Story changes how you think and changes how you live. You get into a story and you stay there and get to know those characters. We need books that build worlds of Muslims that people want to be part of. We need beautiful literature that says something good about Muslim peoples. We don't we have we don't have it now. We published one book in our publishing company, so I guess and I'm sure there may be two or three others out there, but other than that, we do not have it. And this is a catastrophe, really. It's a catastrophe. So we need to change, we need to affect and talk about this kind of culture in order to make these kinds of changes. We need to, did I say, we need to talk about terms. We need to think about our terminology and change it. We need, I think people of faith is a good thing to say. I think that we can also be thinking about using other words like empowering others, one another. We can talk about the importance of nurturing and start thinking about that, that we want to be nurturers. We as Muslims want to be nurturers as the Prophet was a nurturer of his people. And of course, I always have to say, we need to hold tightly, very, very tightly to education. And especially here, I want to talk about literacy and then I will open the floor for questions. There, Paulo uh, Freire was a Brazilian educator, and he was a, um, in, this, in 1964, I believe, was his uh, big, when he, well, anyway, he was from Brazil, and he, they had, he saw that the peasantry of Brazil were very oppressed, and that one of the reasons they were so oppressed is because they were illiterate. He created a really fascinating methodology of teaching literacy. He went out to these peasants and taught them literacy, how to read, how to read. Now, he had a, a unique methodology, which we won't talk about today, but in this methodology, it was so empowering that only three years, I'm not 100% sure about the three years, but it was a very short time, three years after the beginning of this literacy program. Now remember, he's only teaching them how to read. It was so empowering that he was exiled from Brazil. He lived for 20 years in Chile, Chile, before he was able to go back. Now, I studied a lot of his work, but, and what it means to me is the importance of literacy. And we as Muslims, we have to be literate 
and Arabic. No matter what our cultural background is, we have to have Arabic literacy. We cannot stay at the mercy of translators. We cannot, we, we don't have to be, and when I say literacy, that's what I mean. We need our scholars to be more than just literate, but as a group of people, we need to have basic Arabic literacy so we can access the Quran, have access to hadith, have access to the understanding when someone has translated something in a very uh, subjective manner that we can recognize that and not have our faith affected because of that translation. And it's, it can be really bad sometimes. So I think, well, education, I run a whole program about education in Islamic studies. I think it's all important. But for today, I would say Arabic is key. We have to be literate. Our children need them to be literate in Arabic, and we need to be literate in Arabic. And unless we are, we run the risk of really being oppressed continuously and losing touch with more than just our religion, with our identity. And more than just our identity, with any possibility of coming back out on top. Just like Paulo Freire saw that these peasants needed to be able to read Portuguese, that's the language of Brazil. We need to be able to read in Arabic. We have to be able to read in Arabic or we won't have access to the kinds of thought and thinking that our earlier scholars thought about. We'll be able to continue that conversation and we have to continue the conversation. Okay, well those are some of my ideas about uh, leadership for social change in Muslim communities. I'm very involved in it on a practical basis. I kind of live a lot of this all the time. So I, I apologize if it was a little bit too theoretical. It feels a little theoretical right now. But um, alhamdulillah, thank you for having me. I appreciate being able to be here. It's an honor to be here. Please give my salams to Sheikh Abdul Hakim. Are there any questions? Do I have time for questions or is my time up? No. Okay. Are there any questions or comments? Um, do you think some of these problems are external to the Muslim community? But I think personally, do you, and do you do you agree that one of the major inhibitors for our for any sort of change is going to be the way we the the, the interfighting that's going on within the Muslim community and the groups that we form? And unless we can overcome that, there's no way we can make. <clears throat> I think that if I actually think we can unite on stopping some. I think that that's a real place we can come together. So we argue and fight about issues of theology or issues of uh, ethnicity or whatever. Even different countries, it's different. But we can certainly all come together against hunger. We can certainly all come together against racism. We can certainly all come together against issues that are, are external to the community, but in being external to the community, they're part of the community because we, we need to think of ourselves as a new, and when the Muslims went to Indonesia, when the Muslims went to China, when the Muslims went out as, as businessmen and such, and they became part and parcel of the community and made changes there and brought some there, that's how we need to start thinking about ourselves. As we live here and we're responsible. I, were, I was in the car the other day with someone and we were talking about some issues that indigenous peoples have in Minnesota. And I said, we talked, and I said, SubhanAllah. Who's going to be responsible for this? You know, because we're all thinking that this has nothing to do with us. This isn't me. Who's responsible for this? And then it hit me. Well, why am I not responsible? And why am I? Why am I? Why am I allowing myself to be removed from this problem just because I'm not an indigenous person? 
there's a real question there that we need to ask ourselves as Muslims. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put us here. And there are problems from our neighbor's hunger to our neighbor's other issues. How much of that is Allah going to ask us? I don't know. I don't have the answer. But I think that we need to be seriously thinking about that. And I also think that on a positive level, it can actually unite us. We can all agree that we want to rid the world of those kinds of problems. Maybe not even the world, our community of, uh, of, the, of environmental issues litter and stuff like that, whatever, whatever the issues happen to be. Yes? Um, thank you very much. I'm very struck by uh, what you say here and think that there's a lot about, about positive change if the women's entrance is festering for females. And so in East London, I think you can count on the hat too, with one hand, number of mosques that have a side entrance for women. And this is, a, this is a scandal in the proper sense. And you know, women are leaving religion, no question about it. Sorry, just what, for a point of understanding, do you mean that so there isn't enough space for women at all? Women are not allowed in the mosque. Ah. So during the mosque, they're kicked out and not allowed to Now, what advice would you give to women in that situation? Because people are completely stumped, and there are all manner of strategies being put together that are divisive but confrontational. And I sympathize with people who want to be confrontational on this, but I don't know that it'll help. What advice would you have? Um, well, at first I would say let's be creative. And one of the things to be done is to open up a woman's mosque. <laughs> uh, they've done that in China. And there is precedent at the time of the Prophet because in Waraqah, in her home, asked for a mu'addin for her house, and the Prophet gave it to her, and mu'addin kind of means a mosque. And there are women's mosques in China, and I wouldn't, we wouldn't need, you wouldn't need to do that in order to be um, confrontational, but rather to provide space that is especially for women, and that way they can go. Then you can even, it could be presented as a beautiful thing. You can come here, this is your space, you belong here, you can run it, it's your thing, do what you want with it. Um, that's one way to manage it. I think another thing is we need to approach our board of directors, whoever's running our mosques, and we need to understand that the mosque in the Western world and the Muslim mind is compared to the church. In our countries, the Muslim countries around the world, post-colonialist mosques are nothing but a prayer center for Fridays. And often are locked and closed at other times. So many immigrants came over to America, and I'm, I'm imagining to England as well, and built mosques out of great sincerity and great love for their religion and great desire to, to be able to establish their religion here without really understanding the purpose of the mosque originally at the time of the Prophet. And that original purpose was a community center, it was a place where there was learning, it was a place that people came together. It was a place, certainly, where people prayed all the time, including at night. And when we look, and when Westerners look at the mosque, they think religious building, that should be like a church, or whatever. And the church is open in America, is open all the time. There are ladies' lunches, there's this going on, there's all this stuff going on, stuff that's serving the community. So when we block women from coming to the mosque, we are blocking much of the community service. And I don't know the solution, maybe, but I know that maybe we need to talk, broaden that dialogue and help people see that we need to do something. Um, 
it's a really serious issue, and I think that the fact that women are leaving Islam, and I know they are in America as well, I'm sure they are here, and putting our adult women aside, our girls, they have no reason, I mean, what, they can't even fathom this idea that they're not allowed in the mosque, or that they're going to be yelled at when they walk into the mosque. It's really insulting. I mean, the people of privilege don't understand what it's like to be a person who's not a person of privilege. And in Muslim communities, all men are people of privilege. And women are not. And it's, it's hard to understand how hurt you can be when you go into your place. You want to pray. You're outside. But for me, you're outside. You're going somewhere. And you want to stop and pray. And you're told you wear a scarf. And you're a woman. And you're, you are coming to pray. Whether you wear a scarf or not, but in my particular situation. And you're told, oh no, you can't come in here. There's nobody in there. It's not like it's packed. There's nobody in there. But you can't go in there to pray. There's something wrong with this way of thinking. This is not the thinking of our Prophet. It just isn't. We all know that when we talk about it. We all, I think we do. We all recognize that he went into the mosque and found a rope hanging from the ceiling for crying out loud. He said, what is this rope? He said, Ya Rasulullah, this is the rope of your wife, Zainab. When she stands at night and prays and she gets too tired, she hangs on to it so she won't fall over. The Prophet didn't say, what the heck is she doing in the mosque? He said, tell her when she gets tired to sit. And that is interpreted in two different ways. Some people say it means to sit and pray. Others say it means to sit and wait until she feels better and then continue to pray. You know, we have plenty of proof, Our, I, but we need to have conversations, I think. I, perhaps opening a woman's house, I don't know. For me, third space has been the answer. I opened a third space. One of the reasons for daybreak, full disclaimer, is because in Minnesota, I was struggling to find a place where I was comfortable. I did later on find a house that I felt comfortable in. But I opened a daybreak because I said, if I feel uncomfortable, if I'm not feeling welcome, that means there are thousands of women who don't feel welcome. So I opened up Daybreak. I didn't call it a mosque because that would be controversial. I called it a bookstore and a gathering space. And I have a classroom in the back and that's where we did, we had Tarawih prayers there. We do a lot there. So I mean, a third space, that's a, that's a whole philosophy. A third space is an opportunity to bring people together until we can get to a point where the mosques are ready to, um, to embrace the sin of the Prophet Yes? Related to that point, um, so, so you said that you called it that you had third space and mosque would be quite controversial. Yeah. And a lot of issues that we see when you, when you try to address them, you can either be radical and controversial and try to bring back things quickly, or you can take more sort of slowly conceivable steps. Um, do you think it's too late for small um, baby steps? <laughs> Or do you think agitation will just create more problems? I'm not a conflict person. I don't see this in the life of the Prophet Perhaps because I'm 50 years old and I'm a grandmother. Um, but I'm not, I don't prefer conflict. I prefer hard work. I think people are moved by success. And when you have success, if you do a third space and all of a sudden all the girls in the community are memorizing Quran and coming in, there's a lot of, that kind of success can make a change in the way people think. And maybe it won't, but at least you accomplish your goal, so it doesn't matter so much. I think we, for me personally, I want my goal, I want to accomplish my goals more than I want to make a point. 
I think we need to be careful that we don't end up in a, in a big bowl of nefs where I want to do right. Hmm. I just want to do right. You know, something we want to be. I don't want to divide the community more than it already is. You were going to say something. Yeah, it's sort of, um, it's very interesting, by the way, what, what you're saying. I can relate to a lot of what you've brought up um, through my own experience over a long period of time. <coughs> and um, one of the, well, lots of those things on that list, but especially one in five, I kept wanting to jump to education every time you were talking. And I like the idea of creating a third space as a, as a temporary thing because we do need to re-educate. But we have a fear of our own voice when we don't have that feeling of empowerment. If we haven't had the education that we've needed either in a secular sense or in a faith sense or in that understanding of our spirituality and our mess. So we then don't use our voice because we're fearful of doing so. Or if we use it, we create agitation. So there's an awful lot of work to be done individually before you start even engaging with anybody else. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if I can just say it here, like if I, what I'm, for copy purposes, <laughs> my whole thing is a revolt, which is educating astoundingly. It's Circles of Light, which is upbringing spiritually. And it's Daybreak Press, which is bringing a voice out in articles and in books. And then it's Daybreak Shop or Gathering Space, which is both a place to meet as a third space and a place to reach out to non-Muslims and bring them in. So this is my, the way I did it. It doesn't have to be done this way. This is the way I did it. I do think... You know that um, we need to be. And this is, I'm just saying this because it's exactly what you said. Like you're talking about the importance of education, the importance of voice, the importance of spirituality, and that's the importance of a place to express that. The importance of a place to go forward. Um, it has made a big difference in the, com- in the community that I'm in. Mosques have become more open as a result of Daybreak itself. There was some little bit of questioning of things, but yeah, alhamdulillah. Am I allowed to say one more thing? Of course. Because something else that you, you said that was very important, and I wrote down in capital letters, very important, and we know on an individual level, definitely because we have individual account, this crisis of prayer. Mm-hmm. And something I experienced when I was volunteering on Mill Road at Arthur Rank Hospice, um, which is a multi-faith environment, but which didn't have um, <coughs> facilities for wudu or somewhere specific for a Muslim to pray, so I went in there as a Muslim. Obviously, I have a white face, so that I don't know whether that brings me extra credence. I hope it doesn't. Um, I didn't get the impression that um, if I had a face of a different colour, that there would be any problem because I did see the way they operated with, with people of other skin colour. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I wanted to say was that when we ask the question, where are we praying? If we don't use the voice to ask, where, where can I pray? Where can I wash? And the reason I'm highlighting this, this example, especially for men on whom it's obligatory for them to be able to say leave, leave work on a, on a Friday in order to do so, um, so some people may not ask. Mm-hmm. Or they may just put up with a certain kind of job or a lifestyle in order to be able to, I don't know, just do the minimum of what's required of them. Where, where I volunteered, 
when I did use my voice, and I didn't find it easy, but I did do it, um, I found they found me a place to, to pray. Um, and actually the new plans that they have drawn up for the new hospice in a different location in Cambridge has Woodall facilities. Oh. And, and it's just one tiny, tiny thing. So yes, baby steps. Do do it. If, if you feel nervous to speak, learn how to overcome. It's like face the fear and do it anyway, to coin an awful phrase. But that, that is what we need. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and we fear our loss of one other the most, don't we? So let's not worry about pushing the words out. I mean, my heart is pounding now as I'm talking. I don't find it easy. Yeah. But, you know, we have to. You're right, crisis. I feel it. Yeah, yeah. And that, yeah, and it's very important. Anything we can do to bring prayer back. Yes? So, addressing issues within the community, obviously, if, if one tries to do that, it requires a significant amount of investment. So within that, even though there are so many issues, issues that affect Muslims, issues that affect all of us, how do we prioritize amongst so many issues of, uh, in terms of which ones we should devote ourselves to? Well, what, what are you good at, I'd say. You know, what are you good at? So what are you interested in? What are you good at? Are you a scientist thinking about environment? Are you a social, social scientist thinking about social change? I'd say whatever you're good at, whatever you're passionate about. And, and because that's going to be fun. And my book is called Joy Jack, so I'm all about fun and joy within this faith. I, I really, you know, find the thing you're good at because that way you'll be using less time to do the big thing that you want to do because you're good at it. So, yes? geographical closeness and so it's about your neighbors. So if you think about that as living in England and who's living around you, that's then you're really obligated. And I did mention, I'll say here about Imam Shafi'i and the Shafi'i Madhab, that when you collect zakat in the Shafi'i Madhab and you want to get, sorry, not when you collect it, when you want to give zakat away in the Shafi'i Madhab, you have to give it in the location where you would not have to pray a traveler's prayer. Meaning it has to be local. Now I recognize other madhabs are different, but this is, and this is not about money, but this is about where is our obligation. And there's a lot of giving away that we can do, which is not only money, and we need to really take seriously the importance of our local community, whether they're Muslim or not, wherever they are. And subhanAllah, going back to the idea of priority, you don't have to pour your whole life if you're not really interested in these things into that stuff, but just being good to them. Just being a basically good neighbor can make a huge difference in the future. I, I, in my, I have a new neighborhood. I recently moved, and I gave some a couple of the neighbors gifts. And uh, oh my, it was. I mean, I didn't know who they were, and now I've got one neighbor inviting me to to this. What I mean, it's all this crazy stuff that they want me to do now. But I mean, I've suddenly made my neighbor is a musician. <coughs> He's running a Syrian refugee rock concert. <laughs> and he wants me to tell him and do I don't know what. So, I mean, my point there is that I wouldn't have even known that he had did anything with the Syrian refugees had I not gone over there with my little gift for him. So I didn't even know it was a him in that house. I didn't even know who lived there. 
you know, so I mean, we need to be, get over our fear of meeting people and knock on that door and just be nice. So, yes. Yes. Uh, my question is, is that um, if you are living in a community where there is no hostility towards women, but you have facilities, not like East London, um, in a nice area, um, do you think that as a female leader, it is better for her to set up an institute um, that is exclusively for women, or do you feel that it will give the whole idea of as and them, or mm-hmm. as in brothers and sisters, and separate, you know, as in, in terms of non-Muslim or Muslim. Do you think that as a, as a female, um, it is better for her to provide something that is for the whole of the community, or just exclusively for women? I mean, you're asking about what is better. I, I don't, I don't know that I can answer that. I think that if you, my own personal look at what women have been able to do that has been really successful in the past and really has made great and wide social change is when they have focused on really helping women. There's people like Nana Esmao was a really good example of that. But that doesn't mean that, depending on what she's doing, she couldn't have an impact on the community in other ways as well. I think that's really situational. It depends on what she has to offer as well. And it's very, it depends on the community that she's in and how much help the women need and how much she can offer them. I don't know that I can say, well, there's a, a, there's a you know, one way or the highway kind of thing there. That's anything else? Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. Oh, there's one here. Yeah. I think everybody wants to go. Why don't you come up here and ask me that question? Whatever it is. Everyone's anxious to get home. for the women who are here. We're open for registration. I'm teaching three classes this semester. You're welcome to join.